Uh, our scripture reading this afternoon is from 1 Peter 1, and it can be found on page 10 of the bulletin, and it'll also be projected above. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the knowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was, in, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that, you have, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Brent. Appreciate it. Okay, kids, I mentioned your uh, Trinity Kids Bulletin. You can grab that now. There's a place on there to jot down these three things that I want you to listen specifically for. Uh, the first is uh, an illustration about being born. Secondly, an illustration about gold. And then thirdly, tiptoes. So uh, being born, gold, and tiptoes. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we come to this great passage together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, we uh, take great comfort, we take great joy uh, in knowing that when your people gather around your word and your word is proclaimed in their midst, that you promise to be present there by your spirit and that you promise to accomplish what you desire. And so, uh, Father, that is what we ask for now. We pray that you would enable us to see Jesus and all of his beauty, all the grace that is ours uh, in him. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Uh, one of my all-time favorite movies is uh, Shawshank Redemption. It actually, uh, it was a movie that came out in 1994. Not everybody knows this, but uh, Stephen King actually wrote the novella that became uh, that movie. And so if you don't know the story, it's about a banker named Andy Dufresne. Uh, he gets wrongly accused of murdering his wife. So he gets sent to Shawshank Prison. And uh, the joke among all the, the inmates at Shawshank is that nobody is really guilty there, that they're all innocent of their crimes. The thing is, though, is that Andy really is innocent. And so he, he holds on to this hope throughout the movie 
that because he's innocent, that he's someday going to be vindicated, that he's ultimately gonna be set free in the end. And so uh, his friend, his best friend that he meets uh, in prison is Red, uh, played by Morgan Freeman. And so Red kind of sees that this hope that Andy has, and here's what he says to him. He says, let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. So Andy hears this though, and still continues to, to cling to this expectation and hope that he's gonna be set free. What happens though, is that that future hope transforms his experience and even the suffering of being in prison. And, and it's actually ultimately that hope that, of his innocence that results in him, and here's the, the spoiler alert for an almost 30-year-old movie, uh, he escapes from prison. And, and so he, he's escaped from prison, and he writes this letter to Red, who's still in prison, and he says this, remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. And the, the tagline for the movie is, fear can hold you prisoner, hope can set you free. And so uh, we're starting this new series today uh, on First Peter, and, and Peter's audience is facing a dilemma similar to that. They're facing this dilemma between fear and hope. And so here's what's happening. Peter's writing this to a mainly Gentile audience uh, that they had become Christians in Rome. And then uh, what happened is that they were then scattered all over the Roman Empire. And this was actually the, the way that Rome sort of did things. Like they, they would take Roman citizens, usually in groups of at least 300, and they would send them out to these other cities. And the hope was that as they lived there, that they would perpetuate this, this Roman culture and Roman influence, and then it also gave them these military outposts. And so that's what's happened to Peter's audience, but, but here's, here's what it meant for them. So much of what had solidified their faith, their, their family, their, their friends, their, their church home, had been taken away from them as they were scattered uh, to these other places. And so now they're, they're in this place where, where they're the minority, they're not at all a part of the dominant culture, and everything about their lives feels uncertain. And on, on top of that, they're being persecuted for their faith. And so what, what you read throughout this letter is this theme of suffering. They are facing suffering, and, and they're kind of going, what are we supposed to do in these circumstances? How are we supposed to live here when everything's been stripped away from us and we're being persecuted for our faith in Jesus? What does it look like to follow him in this place when life is so hard and when suffering is so real? And it doesn't take much to, to, to put yourself in their shoes and go like, that had to be so unbelievably scary and so incredibly discouraging. And I think there are, there are a couple of, of very real ways that this can map on to our experience. One is that we also live in a world surrounded by people that don't believe the same things that we do. And so we have to ask the question, how do we live faithfully in that environment where not everybody shares our Christian faith? Here's the other way that it maps onto our circumstances though. And it's just this basic fact of how hard it is to live with hope when everything feels so discouraging in your life? How, how can you remain hopeful when, for example, you've been a Christian for many years and you really thought that, you would bring, that, that, that you'd see more change in your life by now? 
and yet you're still struggling with the same sins that you have for 25 years, and it is so discouraging to you? Or, or how do you remain faithful or, or, or hopeful when you thought that you'd be in a much more stable place in your career? And because you're not in that place, the financial stress just feels eternal and perpetual, like you can't get out from under it. And it is beating you down and it is so discouraging to you. Or how do you remain hopeful when you start to see just how broken the relationships in your family really are? And you don't have any idea as to what it would look like even for them to be healed and reconciled and made right. And it is so discouraging when you look honestly at those relationships. And so what, what Peter does is from the start of this letter, he reminds them of who they really are. He tells them, you are elect exiles. And as I mentioned earlier, he means that in a couple of ways. On the one hand, he means that they are, they are exiles and that they've been scattered geographically, like they're all over the place now. They're not in their homeland. But he also means it in a, in a sense that they are in exile because of their faith in Jesus. And this is what's true of every Christian, and it's always been true of every Christian, that we live in a world that doesn't feel like home. To, to be a Christian is to be born into a world in which you are now an exile or a pilgrim. And as I mentioned earlier, this world will one day be our home, this very physical world, but it will not be our home until Jesus returns and makes all things new. And so until then, we, we are living in exile. It, it's this place of tension. And so the question for us too is, how do we live faithfully in a world that doesn't believe the same things that we do? How do we live in a world that is so broken and so fallen? And maybe most importantly, how do we do that without growing discouraged and fearful? And so here, here's what Peter says. He says, you are not where you are by accident. What he says in verse two is that you live where you do and you live when you do and you live in the circumstances that you do because of the foreknowledge of God the Father. You, you are his chosen people. You are his elect exiles, these people that he has set his love upon. And so what Peter says in this specific passage that we'll look at today is that because that's true, you can live as a people of hope. And that future hope can actually transform how you live right now, no matter how hard your circumstances are. And so uh, what I wanna do uh, this winter and spring as we make our way through this book is to ask and answer this question every week. How can we live faithfully in this world? And so here's what we'll see this week. We live faithfully in this world by grounding our hope in Jesus, by grounding our hope in Jesus. So three points about this hope. Here's the first. Our hope is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. It's rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you uh, look back to verse three, uh, this is the beginning of one run-on sentence in Greek. Peter just starts and he doesn't stop all the way until you get to verse 12, and so, uh, and it all flows from this first phrase in verse three of praise and thanks. Here's what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, why? why? Why is he blessing and praising God? He's blessing and praising God because of the hope of salvation that comes through Jesus' resurrection. And so, all kinds of things we could say about this in these first few verses. Let me just point out a couple things about this hope. Here's one. 
our hope that we have through Jesus' resurrection is given by God. God is the one who, in, in, in verse three, has caused us to be born again. So look at, look at verse three. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And this is where that, the language of birth and, and new birth is really helpful. So uh, Andy just prayed for the Pibuses that Cameron and Emily had their baby this morning, that uh, Charles, uh, uh, Charles Tyler Pibus. Now, kids, here's what I want you to think about. This is a little silly, okay? Stick with me here. Did Charles do anything this morning to be born? Was there something that, that he did? Did he think like, okay, now is the time where I'm going to born myself, birth myself now? No, right? And the reason for that is because being born is something that happens to you, right? And that same thing is true when the Bible talks about us being born again. It's a gift, and that's why Peter says that it's according to God's mercy. And so part of what that means is that the hope that you now have is a gift from God. That it's not the kind of hope that you were trying to conjure up on your own. It's this objective hope that comes to you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that, that, that's why Peter can say that it's a living hope. Now, why, why would he put it that way? He puts it that way, one, because Jesus is the source of it, and he's been raised from the dead, and that it's now a living hope. But practically what that means is that this hope is living and lasting and active. And that there are things that you can hope for then that aren't that, that aren't living, that won't last. And so part of what Peter's saying is that anything that you try to cling to for that sort of ultimate hope apart from Jesus is going to fail us. It won't do the trick. There's uh, one of my favorite gifs or gifs, depending on your dialect, uh, they, uh, that, that has this little boy and he has his fingers crossed and he's going, please, 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 please. And that's a picture of what this hope apart from Jesus looks like. It's just hoping against hope. And that's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is given by God. It, it, it's living and it's certain because it's rooted in the historic reality of Jesus' resurrection. It is a gift of God. So that's the first thing to see about this hope. But, but our hope is secondly, secured by God. It's secured by God. So in verse four, he shifts to this language of inheritance. And, and he says it's, uh, it's imperishable. It's undefiled, it's unfading. In other words, it's permanent and it's lasting. And then he says this, it's also safe. It's being kept by God in heaven for you. So this is a hope that can't be touched by pain. It can't be touched by disappointment. It can't even be touched by disease or death. It can't be touched by your failure or by your loss. And the reason that's true is because God himself is keeping it for you. But then look at verse five. He shifts from talking about the, the protection of the salvation and inheritance to the protection of you. Who, by God's power, he's talking about you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. In other words, your salvation is being kept and protect, protected but so are you. 
Uh, one of the things that uh, pastor, his name is J.D. Greer, he points out in a sermon on this passage is just thinking about what this would have meant for Peter as the author, thinking about this, this inheritance and security. So if you think back to Peter's life, he had staked his life on Jesus being the Messiah. He is the rock upon which this church is gonna be built and at a point where Jesus is talking about how everybody's gonna scatter and betray him, Jesus, or Peter says, I will never leave you. Though they all depart, I will never leave you. Jesus says, actually, you're gonna betray me uh, three times before the rooster crows. And so that is, of course, what happens. And so everything in Peter's life comes crashing down. When Jesus is arrested, he betrays Peter the rooster crows, and then the way the gospel accounts put it is that he wept bitterly as a complete failure. And yet, that same Jesus, three days later, rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, what he told the women at the tomb to say is he said, go to the disciples and Peter and tell them that I'm alive. And he restored him and he forgave him. And so I mention all that because Peter is writing this letter from this place of firsthand experience. He knows what it is to be guarded by God's power, to be so discouraged and disappointed by his own sin and so devastated by all that's going on around him as he sees Jesus crucified that it feels like everything is lost only to find out that that entire time he was being guarded by God's power. Peter says, your hope in Jesus is secure and it's certain. And it could be that, that every other part of your life feels like it is up in the air, like nothing is stable and you feel so discouraged by that, you feel so fatigued by that and you feel so beaten down by it. But the hope, if you've put your faith in Jesus, of that salvation is completely rock solid. And that's because God himself is protecting it for you. And, and that can actually transform the way you experience the worst things in your life right now. And so that, that's really what our second point is. So secondly, our hope brings joy in suffering. It brings joy in suffering. Now, I, I always have to put this qualification from the start because this can be so easily misunderstood. What Peter is not saying is that suffering itself brings joy. Nor is he saying that, that your suffering is somehow good and, and something to be desired. The way the Bible talks about, about suffering is that it is a product of the fall. It is not something that's good, and it's not gonna be a part of the world that God's gonna remake one day. Here's the thing, though. Because Jesus has conquered death by his resurrection, the Bible says that real joy is possible even in the, in the absolute worst circumstances of your life. So how does that work? Well, he mentions a couple of ways here. One is this, that our hope in Jesus actually transforms our perspective on suffering. And so part of what he does here is he gives us this sort of um, big picture perspective on suffering. So verse six, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And it's that phrase, for a little while, that's really important. He's saying that because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, you can know for certain that all of the suffering that you are facing will come to an end one day. Your suffering has an expiration date. It will not last forever. 
it will come to an end. It will not always be this way. And one of the reasons that, that it is so important for us to hear that and to underline that is that part of what suffering does is to make you think that it is never going to end, that it is going to be like this for the rest of your life, and there's nothing you can do about it. Peter says, that's not true. And, and, and here's the thing as well. He is not saying that you need to think about your suffering as just not that big of a deal. And what you really need to do is just try to ignore your suffering and downplay it in some ways because that's really the Christian way to go about dealing with the hard things in your life. That is not what he's saying. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He cried out on the cross in the midst of his pain and his anguish as he died for the sins of the world. Peter is not saying you should ignore your suffering. And in fact, what we could say is that he's actually telling us to do the opposite. That rather than downplaying or try to ignore your suffering, you can look your suffering squarely and unflinchingly. And you can look into the depth of your pain and of your suffering and of your trials. And in light of the salvation that's coming, you can know that one day those things will end. That they aren't ultimate. And that they, they actually pale in comparison to this glory and this salvation that you're going to enjoy for all eternity. That's what, what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so here's another way to say this. No matter how bad things are, there is hope. And it's not just because you are a real look on the sunny side of life kind of person and that you're just really optimistic. It's because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And the inheritance that you have in him cannot be touched by anything. Such that now you can have a real joy in your life, even in those spots that, uh, in the words of John Cox, in, in the yuck of your life. And so Frederick Buechner says it this way. He says, resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. But he also says this, and he's going to return to this over and over again, that the suffering that you're going through is not meaningless. And so the second way then that joy is possible in suffering is by realizing that our hope in Jesus can actually be strengthened and confirmed even in the midst of our suffering. And so what God does is he takes this awful reality of suffering and he repurposes it for something good. So he says this in verse seven. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he says that your faith in Jesus can actually come out on the other side of your suffering as more solid than it would have been otherwise. How does that happen? Well, part of the way that happens is that suffering strips away these other things that we're tempted to trust in. And, and it's here that, uh, that that image of gold being refined is really helpful. It's an image that the, the Bible uses pretty often, actually. But what, what happens is uh, when you apply this extreme heat to gold, what, what happens is that all the impurities rise to the surface and you can strip that away, strip that dross away. 
And so what you're, you're left with, with is this pure gold. And that's what God can do for your faith in the midst of your suffering. And so my, uh, my RUF campus minister uh, used to say, suffering can make you bitter or it can make you beautiful. God can take the, the worst things in your life and he, can take, and he can use them to make you more like Jesus. And that's what, some of what Peter says in verse eight. He says, this is actually a way that you can come to know and love Jesus more. Will this be pleasant? No. Will it ultimately result in, in something beautiful in your life? Will it be an occasion for you to experience the love of your suffering Savior Jesus in ways that you could never have otherwise? Yes. And the point here is that not one bit of your suffering is wasted. Here's the hard thing about that, though. That is so hard to believe. I, I, I as a preacher, uh, I, I have a hard time with passages like this that talk about joy and suffering because I feel like I have to qualify them to death because it is so hard to believe that this is true. And so the, the question is, how can we believe this is true? Where, where does faith like this come from? And this is actually where Peter goes in the final few verses. So thirdly, and finally, our hope is rooted in history. Our hope is rooted in history. Our hope is actually part of what God has been planning for all eternity. And so he says a couple things about here, and he starts talking here about the grace of that hope. Here's what he says first. He says, the grace of the gospel was revealed to the prophets. And so uh, what Peter does here is once again, we'll talk about this throughout the book, he ties Christians into the story of Israel again. He shows us to be the, the, the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises. And so what he says is that if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you immediately become a part of this much bigger story of what God's been doing in the world from the very beginning. And he says here that, that these Old Testament prophets longed to see the, how this grace was gonna be revealed. And so he says that they knew that this grace was coming. They didn't know how. And so he says in verse 10 that they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Messiah would be revealed. But it says then through, this, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, their prophecy ultimately pointed to Jesus, this one who suffered before he entered into glory. That, that same suffering and glory that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 53 that we read earlier. And here, here's what's amazing about, about this. That same Holy Spirit, he says in verse 11, is the spirit through whom this good news has now been revealed to you and me. And so here's the point of this. Peter is saying, you know the end of this story. You have seen Jesus' death and resurrection. You have seen the fulfillment of these promises. And you know what the end of this story is. The end is him returning and Revelation 21, where all things will be made new, when every tear will be wiped from our eyes, there will be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, where death itself will be gone. That is the end of your story. And he's saying, when you know the end of that story, it changes the way that you live in the middle of it. Um, so kids, I want you to think for a moment about a, a scary movie that you've seen or a scary part of a movie. And I, I think back to one in particular that I watched with my kids where I felt it like in my gut. And it's Toy Story 3, where there's the, I know, right? 
there's a scene in there, think about this movie though, where the toys are about to fall into the incinerator. Do you remember that? And I want to cover my kid's eyes or something because I'm feeling it. And, and it's, you don't know how it's going to turn out, right? But now if you think about going back and watching that movie again, when you know in the end the toys are going to be just fine, everything's going to be okay, it changes the way you experience the fear and the anxiety in that moment, right? That's some of what happens to us. When you know the end of your story, then in the, the, the hardest and most confusing parts of your life right now, you can be oriented to what is your future that is certain. That is the grace of the gospel that was revealed to the prophets. He says one more thing here about this grace. I'm gonna close with this. He says at the end of verse 12 that this grace of the gospel is something into which angels long to look. Something into which angels long to look. That is an amazing verse. These angels who have watched all of history unfolding, who, who live in God's presence, they've seen all of what God has done in the world. And now what Peter is saying is that there is something that is so glorious that they are straining with all that they have to see what it is. And the, the, the actual language here is of tiptoes. They're, they're straining. It's like they're up on their tiptoes trying to see what it is that God's doing. What is it that they're straining to see? They are straining to see the grace of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus. And here's the thing for us. That's exactly what you and I need to do as well. It's to strain to see the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ because every bit of this hope that we're talking about is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Peter says, you wanna know where you can look to find the faith and the hope that can carry you when you feel so overwhelmed, so discouraged, so broken that you can barely go on. You know where you can look to see that kind of faith and hope? It's at the cross itself. Because it's there that you'll see a love and a hope that is stronger than death. A love and a hope that is permanent and lasting. A love and a hope that is yours because of what Jesus has done for you. That is the hope that's offered in Jesus. The call of this passage is to turn to him to look to him, to trust in him, to hope in him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this living hope that is ours because of the new birth into Jesus' resurrection that you have given to us. Father, you know the ways that we're so tempted to look elsewhere to these other false sources of hope, to grasp and cling to things that might give us some sense of security. And yet they are empty, they're dead. And so Father, we pray that you, by your grace, would fix our eyes upon Jesus as the true source of our hope, and that we would find our trust and our rest in him and in him alone. And we pray this in his name and for his glory, amen.